All right. Well, I think we can give it a go. All right. These days, we laugh when we hear that people didn't used to wear seatbelts in cars, or that you were allowed to smoke anywhere, from elevators to airplanes. How will the next generation laugh at us? Or will they laugh at all? Maybe they'll just cry. Right. We have many technologies to start making change. And we know what behaviors need to change to mitigate climate change. So how will future generations look upon us if we don't change? This is our 10th and final episode of the Community Renewables podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. And at my side, for the last time, is energy chronicler Craig Morris. Hello, everyone. If you, dear listener listened to all 10 episodes, you will have heard some 30 experts on community energy. And congratulations, by the way. These experts have devoted a great deal of their life to renewables and community energy in particular. Today, you will hear many of them again telling us their visions and ideas for the future. Yes, we are going to review what a number of our guests from previous episodes had to say. But we also have three very important new guests, and the first one will take us all the way back to the beginnings in the 1980s. Okay, but why begin with the past in an episode about the future? Well, you remember episode one where we talked about how the German grassroots movement for renewables had started over a debate about values? Yes. Well, there was one thing that we left out. You see, in the 70s and 80s, young Germans were dealing with the country's Nazi past and asking their parents uncomfortable questions like, what did you know and what did you do? And they started wondering what their own children would ask them 20 years later. What did you know about pollution and climate change? And what did you do about it? This connection between dealing with the past, or Vergangenheitsbewältigung, as the Germans call it, was thus a driving force behind Germany's energy transition a generation ago. I know this because I have spoken with so many of these folks from back then And they told me that Vergangenheitsbewältigung was critical for their early commitment to renewables. The most recent example was Hans-Joachim Schellenhuber. The German climate scientist who coined the term tipping points. That's the one. He's probably the most famous climate expert in Germany. And in late 2017, he told me what I had heard from so many grassroots activists in the past 25 years. Germany dealing with its past openly and unflinchingly had made them committed to climate action as well. And this connection is almost unknown today. And I had not heard of it either. So we start this episode with Ursula Sladek. Back in 1986, she was a homemaker and mother of five school-age kids when radiation from Ukraine, from Chernobyl was blown into her town of Schönau in the Black Forest. 
Together with her husband, Michael Sladek, a medical doctor, she formed a group called Parents for a Nuclear-Free Future to promote energy efficiency and return control of energy production and distribution to the community. They wanted to decide where their energy came from. Nowadays, EWS Schönau is a cooperative and a supplier of green electricity all across Germany. And Ursula has won many awards for her work, including the German Cross of Merit, that is the highest honor bestowed in the country. And she also won the Goldman Environmental Prize in the United States in 2011. And she got to visit then-President Barack Obama in the Oval Office when she picked up the prize. So is meeting Barack Obama the highest honor bestowed in the U.S.? Um, meeting the president is a pretty big deal. Usually. Well, I am super honored to have her in our show. So here she is, Ursula Sladek. So Ursula, today, during this pandemic, everyone is told to stay inside because of a risk that people can't see, smell, or feel. Is this what it was like when the German government told its citizens in mid-1986 to stay inside because radiation from Ukraine had reached Germany? I think the feeling and the general mood are similar. People were worried because they didn't know what was going on. A lot of people had never really dealt with the topic of radioactivity, and Chernobyl was so far away. In fact, it was so far away that the German Home Secretary publicly told everyone to calm down because the reactor was so far away that the radioactivity would never reach us. So first, we were told that everything was going to be all right. But then people felt that the government wasn't telling them everything, such as how much radioactivity is too much for a human being. What exactly happens if you are exposed to too much of it? And then we were told, as a precautionary measure, not to let kids play outside. They were to play indoors, and we should keep the windows closed. And so it became clear to everyone that the risk was real. It was a bit like the pandemic today. It was a wonderful spring. Everyone wanted to be outside, and all of a sudden there was this danger that no one could really assess. None of the human senses could detect its presence. In stores, canned goods started to be sold out. I remember going to the local grocer here, and a mother was there with an infant. And she was crying and asked the grocer what she was supposed to feed her baby because milk had been contaminated. Cows had already eaten contaminated grass outside. I don't know if you remember this, but when me and my co-author, Anna Jung-Johan, presented our book Energy Democracy in Freiburg in 2016, your husband Michael stood at the podium talking about how Vergangenheitsbewältigung had made him take action for renewables and conservation back then. Can you talk about that a bit? What's the connection between dealing with a country's history and environmentalism and climate action. Well, 
My husband Michael dealt with Germany's recent history a lot at the time, especially to find out what his immediate family, parents, aunts, uncles, etc., had done during the Third Reich. And eventually we started wondering, what will our children ask us one day? We know what radioactivity is, we had learned about climate change and we knew what the devastating consequences would be. But what do you do about it? That's the question he in particular wanted to be able to answer. It's a moral question. I, of course, also thought about such things, but for me it was more important to change something. I wanted to be part of the change. And of course, now that I have spent so many years working to protect the climate and phase out nuclear, our children will not be able to ask us accusingly, what did you do about it? Okay, so it sounds like you're saying that Vergangenheitsbewältigung was more a driver for Michael than for you. I suppose I have a little bit of trouble with this comparison, because these really are two fundamentally different things. I mean, taking action against the Nazis was incomparably more difficult. Taking action against climate change is easy. Yeah, you, you risked your life during the Nazi regime if you protested. Exactly. We have no excuse. That's why I hesitate to make this moral comparison unless we immediately add that it was hard to do anything back in the 30s and 40s. None of us can be certain how we would have behaved. It's really easy to do something about climate change. So I think the criticism our children may one day direct at us will be more severe if we don't act now. What a touching story! And here we come back to the family aspect of our podcast. Not only that this is a family business, but the main motivation of the older generation is their children and grandchildren. And you know what I find interesting? Tell me. So my friends are starting to have kids. And when the children are born, the parents, so my friends, suddenly start changing their attitudes. Meat eaters become vegetarians, they sell their cars, they pay more attention to the news and they are more conscious of the future effect of our actions today. So I started to wonder whether having kids makes a difference in politics too. Like, do politicians make more future-oriented, climate-friendly policies, for instance, when they have kids? I, I don't want to generalize here, but this is a factor I came across when I talked to the ministers who sat in the German climate cabinet shortly before they discussed their outcome of the climate package. Wait a minute, you, you talked to the German climate cabinet about climate policy? Well, it was not only me, but I was there with representatives from all major German environmental youth organizations and NGOs. Okay, how come? Okay, so last summer I initiated a global climate campaign in preparation for the big UN Climate Action Summit in New York. 
as I was the German UN Youth Delegate on Sustainable Development, I met climate activists from around the world. But at the United Nations, I felt this movement and my generation in general was not well represented. I especially missed young people from the global south, as only a few countries from the global north included official UN youth delegates in their country's delegation. So people like you. Yeah, like me. And what a privilege, I thought. And at the same time, I thought, what can I do to bring more young voices to the climate summit to represent folks from the global south as well? So I started the online climate campaign called All In for Climate Action. Young people came up with 10 points they wanted their country to implement for a climate-friendly future. They set up a petition and started mobilizing on a local level with local actions such as tree planting in Kenya or collecting trash from the beaches in Australia or, for example, educating children in schools in Peru. Or we also had a social media campaign with Bollywood stars in India. Or also being super brave and demonstrating alone in Moscow. Okay, that last one is more courage than I have. <laughs> right. In the end, we were more than 100 young volunteers from five continents with 90 petitions and 1.5 million supporters worldwide. It exploded. And you launched this? Yes. We got covered in many national and international news. We got support from national politicians, from sports stars, from people like Kumi Naidu, that is the Secretary General of Amnesty International, or Jennifer Morgan, she is the director of Greenpeace, Or Bill McKibben, he is the director of 350.org. And all this eventually led to the German cabinet. Well, the Friday before the climate summit, there was this huge climate march in New York. Greta Thunberg was there as well. I later met her shortly and also presented her our campaign. And I had the honor to present this campaign and hand over the signatures to the deputy director general of the UN. And some activists and me later met climate ministers from all around the world and even Angela Merkel. So what did you tell her? The climate summit in New York was just three days after the German cabinet was supposed to come up with its climate package, containing policies that our Chancellor Angela Merkel would present in New York. And my idea was to influence this climate package. So I contacted all major youth environmental groups in Germany and together we built a coalition, the German All-In for Climate Action Group. And we came up with our 10 policy points. Actually, it's 11. I'm not counting. And we discussed these points with the ministers in the climate cabinet. Honestly, we were all super disappointed by their perspective on reality and their plans for saving the climate. But when we reflected on these talks, we realized that none of those top politicians we talked to had kids. So we started to wonder whether having kids might affect policymaking. So you mean having kids might lead to more ambitious climate policy 
because no one is really impressed by German ambitions anymore. Pretty much, yeah. Well, I don't think I've ever met any parents who say their kids didn't change them. Anyway, we'll put a link to the 11 points in your 10-point plan in the show notes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I can only repeat what Ursula said. There is no excuse. Doing something against climate change is easy. next guest is none other than the spokesperson for Fridays for Future, Clara Meyer. Since we talked so much about them in this podcast, I wanted to make sure they speak for themselves here. So I had Craig ask her how Fridays for Future envisions the future. And here's what she said. The corona pandemic has really released a lot of financial aid from the government and we have the opportunity to now fund renewables, support behavior that is climate friendly and is eco-friendly. We really have the opportunity to pave the way for a, for a climate friendly life in Germany by supporting the companies that act in a climate friendly way and maybe reducing the support for companies that pollute our planet hmm. um, and um, so when we envision the future we either see a future where <laughs> we as the German people the government uh, as Germany supports uh, polluting companies like Lufthansa Volkswagen etc or where we support climate friendly endeavors mm -hmm. studies and experience has shown that those are often the ones that are directly helping the community um, mm. by renovating apartments making them more climate friendly by uh, introducing more um, bike friendly roads by yeah. by reducing the cost of public transportation by doing all those things that directly support the community in a social way and by introducing measures that combine the social and the eco-friendly aspect it sounds like clara wants more diversity on markets more community projects And no more bailouts of big companies that are bad for the climate. Indeed. And she didn't even mention fossil fuel suppliers, which I would have expected Americans to complain about, for instance. She's focused on tech firms. And I also asked her about technocracy. Right. You had complained in episode one that the Fridays for Future motto, listen to the scientists, Sounds like we should blindly accept what experts tell us. And specifically, that the experts agree on the problem, but not on the solution. And here's what Clara said. When we say listen to the scientists, we basically only demand the governments of the world to accept the bare minimum, that the climate crisis is the greatest crisis we're in right now, hmm. and that most scientists agree. That is what we mean when we say listen to the scientists. And then, of course, the, there's a completely different debate on, okay, we've listened to this crisis that most scientists agree on. Now, what will we do with that? Mm -hmm. So those are com two completely different debates, and we should mix them. Okay. Well, Craig, it sounds like young people already understood what you are trying to tell them. 
So, Fridays for Future 1, Energy Transition Chronicler 0, I would say. Sure, if you want, but the distinction is important. Lots of climate activists, even my age, seem to be growing impatient with democracy and hoping for some coterie of billionaires to solve everything. So warning people about technocracy is more important today than at any other point in my life. Well, our next guest did a good job in finding a brilliant picture for the urgency we are in. Here is Josef Pesch, another renewable pioneer from the early 1980s. How would you change energy policy uh, going forward? What would be good for you? Well, I think in Corona crisis, we've seen all the things that were deemed quite impossible that are, have become possible now. And we need a fire brigade approach to renewables. Uh, they can go up uh, the wrong way on a one-way street. They can jump red lights. They can uh, break any speed limits that, that are there. We need something similar for renewables because renewables are the fire brigades in climate change. And we need to treat them that way. There is no emergency legislation for, for climate change, and we need that. <laughs> I like the way that Joseph, a guy at the grassroots level, doesn't use political jargon, but gives us a nice metaphor. Yes, clear the way. But how? Well, one answer comes from our international consultant, Toby Couture. We can achieve a bankable, open investment environment for renewable energy technologies without necessarily needing to do feed-in tariffs. In other words, feed-in tariffs are one good way of doing that. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they're the only way of doing What's that. another and good way? Aspects like priority dispatch, mm -hmm. in other words, giving renewables priority on the grid, mm -hmm. makes sense if we want to transition to a low carbon power system um, giving renewable energies priority within that system makes perfect sense and that's one of the respects in which i find the recent european developments around constraining that mm -hmm. priority so problematic i yeah. it, it, it remains fundamentally unclear to me why one would want to constrain um, the priority that renewables have on the grid from now to maximum 400 kilowatts, systems with 400 kilowatts ratcheting down eventually to 200 mm -hmm. kilowatts in size will be granted or will be an insured priority dispatch. Mm -hmm. Everybody beyond that is not going to have it anymore. If Europe is serious about its decarbonization, decarbonization objectives, I think those kinds of policy changes are real head scratchers. Priority dispatch it is, according to Toby. Yeah, uh, Josef Pesch's fire brigade is Toby's priority dispatch. You ramp down fossil and nuclear power to make way for renewables. While all this debate about cost and investment is important, let's not forget other factors of a future energy system. We asked Heinrich Bartelt about his vision. He is one of the pioneers we had in episode one the one with a poster of a Danish windmill on his wall in the 1970s. Energy democracy, energy democracy, by which I mean that the energy transition is about more than just our power and energy supply. Once we've understood that everyone can make their own energy, and when we think of everything holistically, when everyone participates and can contribute something, 
the state and our democracy, which is based on so many people being involved, especially during crises like the corona pandemic, then we will be much stronger together than we would be if everything is run using a delicate system consisting of a small number of big plants, run by just a few big companies, some of which are foreign firms. That would just create gigantic dependencies. Energy democracy is a way of spreading the system across many, many more shoulders. So the transition is about making the energy sector more open to serve the public. Melanie Ball said something similar. She is from the Women's Cooperative in episode 3. One thing I find important about this um, whole idea of the wind energy um, cooperative, actually the, the energy transition should be a transition from one system to another as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, that's my opinion, but I think if it's the big companies now who just uh, change their portfolio of what kind of power plants they are building, then it's not the idea of the energy transition. With the cooperative, where it's just normal people who can join, who can buy their share, and then they own a part of a windmill, that's really something very special. And um, it's about participation, about yeah, being part of it and discussing it. And mm. that is something that won't happen if it's just different companies uh, or the same companies, the same companies who just, yeah. Uh, yeah, who just uh, changing the electrons, different yeah. kinds of uh, plants. Yeah. 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 I mean, when you say a different kind of system, you essentially want a different kind of economy. Yeah. Rebecca, I believe you'd find this thinking among lots of people who launched the grassroots transition in the 80s and 90s. They all wanted a different kind of economy. It wasn't just about the climate. Okay, well, from one cooperative member to the man who represents energy co-ops in the umbrella organization DGRV at the federal level, Andreas Wieck. He will remind us of the duties of Red2. Let's see what he thinks the future holds. The clean energy package says that a cooperative should be able to produce and deliver energy. Yes, it's very hard to deliver the electricity directly to members. But the EU regulation says that the national governance should think about how to, how to make this easier. So, Rebecca, Andreas is basically asking for the same thing that Dieter Schäfer wanted in the last episode. They both want to be able to sell electricity directly to their members. Uh, kind of like what Dirk van Sintian can already do in Belgium with EcoPower because that company has become a full-fledged retail power provider. And what would this practically look like? We asked Stefan Sänger, the Secretary General of the World Wind Energy Association. He will mention Next Kraftwerke, that's a power supplier that networks decentralized renewable energy plants. So here's what Stefan thinks the future holds. We certainly need a law that is regulating the market. There's no doubt about that. And I think indeed the short-term um, step decision that could revive the market on the, on the, I mean, 
save the market and save the industry is going back to feed-in tariff. I mean, as far as possible, as much as possible. Maybe for community groups only or maybe for everyone. Um, of course, we also must be aware that when we come close to 100% renewable energy market, then just a feed-in tariff is not sufficient. No? Because what if there is more than 100% renewable power in the grid? And for that, we need, of course, um, other instruments. We need additional instruments. And I think um, Hans-Josef Fell, he made some proposals which sound interesting. It gives a, a, a premium or a bonus. It's similar to feed-in tariff, just you don't pay the feed-in tariff to, let's say, a wind farm, but you pay a feed-in tariff to an, a group of companies, let's say, which is capable of following the demand, integration bonus. Okay, like so that. like a virtual power plant. Yeah, something like that. Like, and I think like these Bürgerwerke, models, huh? Yeah, but Bürgerwerke. Um, I mean, not community energy, but Next Kraftwerke is also doing great work. Mm -hmm. So technically, we know that it works. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need incentives for such integrative approaches. So Stefan wants to go back to feed and tariffs, at least for community projects. And Craig, what's a virtual power plant? Um, a virtual power plant simply means that instead of having one big power plant, you have numerous small ones acting together to replace a big one. So a few wind turbines, some solar, some biogas units, etc., working together. And Bürgerwerke, that is an association of citizens' energy companies supplying green electricity and a virtual power plant? Sure, the term is loosely defined. Well, in our podcast, we came to the conclusion that the switch from feed and tariffs to auctions was one major barrier for community energy. So, is the solution to go back to feed and tariffs, like Stefan says? David Jacobs, another international consultant, shares his experience with us. Yeah, and in this sense, what, what we really need is long-term power purchase agreements for um, technologies such as wind and solar PV. So whether you um, elaborate the tariff that you get based on administrative calculations like a feed-in tariff or whether you ask uh, industry to offer your prices based on auctions is a, a secondary question. But um, since we're talking about technologies, wind and solar PV, which have very high upfront technology costs, um, very low operation maintenance costs and no fuel costs. We're talking about a technology um, where you pay, where you have to put most of the money on the table up front. So you need to know how mm. much money you will earn over the next 15, 20 years. You need to find ways how to, well, de-risk the project to drive down your capital costs. And that's the main issue that you have for any type of investment in, in renewable energy technologies such as solar PV and wind energy. You know, I don't know, we could, we could have feed-in tariff rates that are indexed to, you know, market indices about panel prices and, and various things like that. Is this being talked about anywhere, or do you have any proposals for how to make feed-in tariffs, I'm going to say future-proof, but I, what I actually mean is politically palatable? Hmm. I mean, indexing has been discussed as well um, in, in Germany. I think there was also a proposal by the ZSB back in 2008 um, and even by the German Solar Association, I think 2008-2009, when um, tariff, different, tariff setting for solar became really difficult because of the, well, it's very 
lively um, market, especially when when China moved into the solar PV market, it was really difficult to predict any prices. So there was the idea coming up of indexing tariffs, but then the German government, um, I think they thought it was too much of a socialist idea of indexing prices, and they had made mm. bad experiences with it in other sectors. So the, okay. the, the ministry, the response ministry, was was reluctant to introduce it. This would only this would only be one option. You could also say that you play around with um, more intelligent combinations of auctions and feed-in tariffs. And I haven't seen any country yet really making good use of the auction results that we got in the last couple of years um, for setting feed-in tariffs, for instance. Um, so I mean, so the, in other words, the, take, the, take the price for the feed-in tariffs from the auctions, from previous auctions themselves. Yeah, and you could even say, hey, we take, um, we look at the uh, project size that we had um, in the auctions, and we have seen that this was actually um, all projects ranging from 20 to 30 megawatts. Um, so we assume that um, community-owned projects with um, 5 or 10 megawatts are a little bit smaller and therefore also a little bit more costly. So we take the price of the auction and we put a 10% add on to this, mm -hmm. and then we pay this for our community energy. I mean, this, of course, has two major downsides. And one one of this is, of course, that, that there, you might um, induce gaming into the auctions so that people bid higher prices because they can then benefit from higher feed-in tariffs in the end. If you know that this yeah. auction round will actually be um, setting the price for your feed-in tariffs for the next five years. Mm -hmm. And it might also lead to a situation where um, project developers will no longer be interested in larger-scale projects. Mm -hmm. And they would rather focus on feed and turf projects, which um, which would below 10 megawatts or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So there is this difficulty, but still, I haven't seen any country really testing it out. Mm. Um, we had proposed this. We were working as a consortium for Saudi Arabia back in 2011, elaborating the auction design, which they're currently using, and also discussing with them how to use this auction then to set feed and turf at a later stage. And we had developed all of these ideas how you could potentially um, use the results, um, also oblige um, maybe people who participate in the auctions to really disclose um, on what type of basis they were um, bidding, or what kind of assumptions they had on on equipment costs, on capital costs, and so on. So you mm -hmm. could later use this information to type it into your tariff calculation. Feed-in tariffs are not dead, so feed-in tariffs are still used in more than 100 countries or jurisdictions around the world for small-scale projects, but they're no longer really used for larger-scale projects. Right. And I would, especially for countries like Denmark, Germany, which have a, or even parts of the U.S. where you have a strong tradition in renewable energy uh, projects um, done by, by the local community, um, you should also set up policy framework which allows these communities to still be part of the part of the game and and it's it's really clear for everyone also everyone in the ministry that by setting up an auction you actually almost by definition exclude these actors okay so still no positive international example of auctions for community energy toby couture also mentioned a way to create a fair feed and tariff one of the big issues that ended up tripping up the, the Japanese feed-in tariff is the pricing. And they, like many other jurisdictions around the world, ended up setting feed-in tariffs that were too generous even by the market's own terms. 
it's not only setting the rates too high, it's that it's the inability to reduce those rates when market conditions justify. So as the cost of renewable energy technologies came down, around the world we've seen far more examples of governments failing to mm. adequately ratchet feed-in tariffs down than countries succeeding at doing that. If you offer a feed-in tariff at two cents per kilowatt hour, is it still a subsidy? Similar to the discussions around a floor price on the ETS, I could imagine something similar as a kind of default offtake price for renewable energy that provides a, f a price floor to all producers. In other words, separating the financial end of the market from the operational end of the market. So what do I mean by that? That means the producer, in a way, in, by interacting with the market, is guaranteed, in the worst case scenario, whatever happens to that electricity, there's a certain agreed upon minimum clearing price mm -hmm. that they then get. And the market on the receiving end, on the operations end, ultimately needs to allocate that electron, that electron wherever it needs to go. Mm -hmm. And if you can work to increase the flexibility of demand, you can make sure that there'll always be a source of demand. One of the problems is we've been trying to do too much on the supply side and not focusing enough on flexibilizing the demand side. So, Rebecca, Toby is basically saying here what lots of other people on this podcast have also said. We need a floor price for wind and solar, but we also need price signals for the demand side so that demand can react to fluctuating wind and solar power supply. All right. Now let's hear what Uwe Nestle, a German expert, thinks we need for the future. For community renewables, we could simply allow small projects to be developed under FITs outside of auctions. Would you take the average price from the last three auctions as the feed-in tariff? That's one option. It would be great for community projects because the auctions have produced such high prices. But we don't need such high prices. Community projects could be profitable with lower prices than those from auctions today. Investment security is more important. The second question is, what policies do we need to get everyone on board, including big players? But even here, we need to return to the old levels of high investment security we once had. And it's really important that the policies we adopt do not have a cap. Auctions, by definition, always have a cap. So, Craig, Uwe, like several of our other guests, wants to have small projects outside of auctions. But you recently tweeted that this would not work. Well, what I tweeted specifically, and we'll put a link in the show notes, is that 18 megawatts has been discussed as the limit. So, meaning that anything smaller than that could be built outside of auctions. For onshore wind, that's about six modern turbines. Right. And what I found was that more than 90% of all projects that won in auctions are already smaller than 18 megawatts in Germany. So saying anything below that limit can just be built outside of auctions would practically mean an end to auctions. So if we're going to have a realistic carve-out for small community projects and we want to keep auctions for big stuff, 
the limit for carve-outs would have to be lower. Well, for the first time in our podcast, we will now come to a politician who is currently in office. Julia Verlinden is a member of the German Green Party and a member of German Parliament. She is an interesting guest because the Greens are likely to be in the next coalition after the elections in the fall of 2021. So, what are German parliamentarians talking about behind closed doors? There are two basic things we need to take care of in the auctions that the government rolled out a few years ago. The first one is the cap on the market, which is a natural part of auctions. Such things are, of course, not helpful if we want to reach 100% renewables quickly. Any investment potential beyond the volume on auctions is just lost then. So we need to allow projects to move forward outside of auctions. And that means that we want to increase the capability of community energy, be it cooperatives or individual citizens to take part. So tenants need to be involved. Citizen groups need to be able to develop their own wind farms and so on. So we are not aiming to get rid of auctions entirely, but they need to be reformed. And we need to make everything taking place outside of auctions more attractive. At the moment, that would be solar. For instance, in arrays smaller than 350 kilowatts. We need to increase those de minimis limits. For solar, it needs to be at least one megawatt. For wind power, we talked a lot about 18 megawatts as the limit in the past few years. But I think the most important thing is that we allow everyone who wants to be involved to actually take part so that we can expand renewables faster. But the smallest wind turbine today is larger than the 750 kilowatts that Germany allows to be built outside of auctions. Exactly. We have to raise the limits. For instance, we are discussing whether to allow community projects, or indeed any small project, say, smaller than 18 megawatts, to go ahead and build, if they can accept the average price from the last three auctions rounds. The problem is not just the price, but all the paperwork that goes into participating in an auction in general. Everyone has to do it, of course, but it's a big challenge for community projects, and it's a big financial risk if they don't win a contract. And there's also the issue about having to prove that you are eligible as a community energy project. It's hard to understand why such hurdles have to be set up. After all, we want people to take part in the transition. It's not so important how big the community project is or where individual members live. What's more important is making it easier for people to develop renewable energy projects. The availability of land is one of the biggest question marks at the moment. But the German government has already tried to define community energy, and it didn't work well. How would you improve that definition? That's a really good question. If we want to build more renewables, we don't really need a definition of community projects. At least not in deciding who has to take part in auctions and who doesn't. Or who has special requirements before they can submit a bid, such as for getting a construction permit beforehand. For the transition, it would be better if we didn't worry about who is community renewables and who isn't, 
but rather just allow all projects, say smaller than 18 megawatts, or some other limit, to go forward without having to take part in auctions. That would be better both in terms of building renewables faster, outside of auctions, and towards getting more people involved. RED2 gives us this leeway, and we know from the expert opinion provided by the Würzburger that RED2 doesn't insist on auctions for everything. It simply requires competition, but we have that with the requirement of direct marketing. Otherwise, RED2 just talks about the rules needed if auctions are used. Germany has another year to transpose RED2 into national law. Is anything going on behind closed doors? Nothing has been made public yet. I'm not aware of any specific drafts that the government or the ministry is working on. At least, there has been no word about any work going on to prepare improvement for community renewables. There is general talk about another revision of the Renewable Energy Act, but those amendments pertain to a number of things not related to the new directive from Brussels. I think we need to look into the general condition for things like energy sharing. We need to improve those conditions, because community energy is not just about building new systems, but also using that energy locally. So, Craig, Julia doesn't insist on defining community groups at all, but you said you liked the Irish definition. Well, I liked it because it's flexible, and if we have to define what is community and what isn't, I'd like to be as flexible as possible. Meaning that you would like to have no definition either? Let me put it this way. When German law didn't care about who was community and who wasn't, It was very inclusive, and we had lots of community energy. And since we started defining it, it has disappeared. So what we need is not a definition, but a policy that truly promotes all market players. Which auctions don't? No. All right, well, it's time for our last guest, Jana Neisten. She is a legal expert at the German Foundation for Environmental Energy Law in Würzburg, which is why the people at the foundation are also called the Würzburger. Yeah, and you may remember Jakob Schlant from episode 5. He mentioned the Würzburger when we got into an argument about whether the cost of renewable electricity should be borne as a part of your power bill or, in order to protect the poor better, as part of your income tax. So they'd be better protected if the costs of renewables didn't raise their electricity prices. Exactly. Um, I told him I would ask Jana of the Würzburger what she thought as a legal expert, and here's what Jakob said. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the Würzburger are, in my opinion, the best guys in, in the Republic. <laughs> um, they're, they're really, they're, they are brilliant, and they do, they By the way, maybe it's uh, it's good to say that they are doing a terrific job also because they are publishing all their results and opinions mm. and they're not trying to make the most money uh, uh, they, they can from Which it. Which is very uh, unusual, yeah, in the law, in the field of law. It's, it's very selfless of them in a way, yeah. 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 
Okay, well, let's turn our attention now to the best girl in the German Republic, who is about to give us free legal advice. And Jana is also, as she herself puts it, a soccer girl, so get ready for some sports analogies. And you two also talk about the ECJ, that's the European Court of Justice, which is sort of the Supreme Court of the EU. It ruled in 2019 that it was legal for Germany to cover the cost of renewables via power bills and suggested that paying for green power via income taxes might make the scheme state aid. Finally, Jana also tells us whether Red 2 is toothless. In fact, it's the first question Craig asked her. So let's get started with our last guest, Jana Neisten. So there are people who say like, yeah, the, the RAT or the RED, it's just for the member states to decide whether they want to have energy communities or not. And if they find that they don't want to, we're not going to push them. Let me quote it by um, the very wording. It says that the member states shall create an enabling framework to promote and facilitate renewable energy communities. Mm -hmm. Now, you can read this either the member states shall create an enabling framework and the enabling framework is supposed to promote and facilitate, mm -hmm. or you can read it with a focus on the promote and facilitate. You're totally a lawyer. See, I never would have even read yeah. that deeply, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so from my understanding, it is the purpose that the member states do promote and facilitate renewable energy communities. But there's no penalty for not doing it. Right. There is no penalty for not doing that. And there is a lot of discretion to the member states on how they want to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what, what are the options then? Um, in Article 22 itself, it's like, okay, you have the, uh, the non-discrimination, you have to allow them like their basic rights in order to, for them to be able to function, um, like uh, the thing that they can uh, share the energy within the community and stuff, um, and you know, like, I call that the basic rights. Mm -hmm. But then you have this paragraph four, which talks about the uh, enabling framework, which I quoted. And there are certain options mentioned uh, what such an enabling framework could look like. Mm -hmm. They are very vague. I think there's two things about community energy, um, or I want to call them renewable energy communities in this context, because community energy, uh, energy communities without renewables are not under uh, the regime of the Red 2, but they are under the regime of the uh, internal electricity market. Mm -hmm. um, they exist as well, they are regulated as well, they are regulated a little bit differently and they do not have this promote thing in the regulation. So on the one hand, you know, we have this create an enabling framework, question mark, what is that? Remove barriers, remove unjustified barriers, do not discriminate, cost reflective uh, network charges. So try to try to make it try to make the system fit for them, mm -hmm. but not yet speaking about the support system. Because for the support system, which is the options, mm -hmm. if there are options, 
you have the you have this thing you have to um, take into account the specificities specificities well hmm. my mouth um, of renewable energy communities in that setting does that now mean that I can say renewable energy communities can get an exemption from from having to go into auctions well that's another one I had to think pretty hard about because you asked me that question in writing before and I was like what do we want to do here? If you have a renewable energy community, it produces renewable energy, which mm -hmm. is good mm -hmm. because we want renewable energy. Right. But if we have a wind park without a renewable energy community, it will produce renewable energy as well. Right. And probably and if it's run by a corporation that put up, you know, a hundred turbines instead of eight then there are economies of scale. But what you end up with is this vicious circle where the corporations are always going to be cheaper because of economies of scale, and the corporations do business nationally, if not internationally, so they are able to go around the country and identify which spots are the best for wind power that have the best wind, the land costs the, the least, and those kind of things. Whereas a community group might want to build three or four wind turbines on a hill next to town. And if they're just not able to compete like that, they're not going to go shopping around the country. They're just going to quit. I know. To come back to your, to, to your question of, you know, why do we want to do this? I mean, I don't know if we want to do community energy, but if we don't want to do it, then uh, we are handing the sector completely back to the energy companies when there was a window of opportunity in the past decade or two to allow everybody to start participating. There is a huge price to pay for actively telling citizen groups, go home, uh, you're not cheap enough. Right. And this is, this is why I was asking the, uh, well, the, the, I think I think this is also part of the solution, or at least the solution that I came up with. There are there are different solutions. Mm -hmm. You could you could argue that you want to have an exemption for renewable energy communities from the auction requirement, because you could say, well, the renewable energy communities cannot be cost efficiently supported through auctions. Mm -hmm. I think you can make that point because it's not going to happen. They 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 right. will not be able to to bid on the same um, on the same level as the big corporate wind park. Right. So you you could you could probably argue that the problem right. that you have then is that you're then not primarily promoting renewable energy, mm -hmm. but primarily promoting the sort of setting in which the renewable energy is produced. Right. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, you're promoting really the, the community form of renewable right, energy. Right? right. Yeah. And I think I think that uh, that's that's me personally. That's just my thoughts and ideas because I've been struggling with this provision for a while now. Okay. My personal ideas. I would not so much go for the auction and for the exemption with the auctions. Mm -hmm. I would rather try to well. You know soccer, right? Yeah. I would like to train my team so that it can compete rather than buy the referee. Yeah. So I would 
try to use the Article 22 about um, the enabling framework um, to help create an environment in which the renewable energy community has certain advantages mm -hmm. that will allow them to compete in the auction. In, in addition to that, I would like to think about the uh, thresholds for the size of projects mm -hmm. as a tool to at least carve out the very small community energy projects. And so right now, Germany has 750 kilowatts. Is that not the right size? Well, the Renewable Energy Directive doesn't say. Right. And under the, uh, under the state aid framework, there's way higher thresholds allowed. Right. They go up to three megawatt. Right. I would try to go this way. And then in addition, try to create settings that would allow my team to play. I think Germany has already tried a few of these things, um, and I wrote a paper yeah. about that that I can um, I can link to in the show notes. I mean, what you do is you end up incentivizing companies to game the system and try to appear to be community groups. Uh, we don't right. have to go into that in great depth, and I should also point out that even like so, the, what you're proposing is certain benefits within auctions. That that would you know bring about these gaming incentives, but the other thing that I was proposing will also bring about similar or maybe even worse uh, gaming incentives. Well, the gaming thing is another thing that I've been thinking about. I mean, that I think was a mistake that we did in Germany, and we learned from it um, with the companies pretending to be community energy. Well, well, did did we learn from it though? Because we we haven't fixed it. I mean, we learned from it in the sense that we sort of toned down the the benefits, and now we kind of just given up. It's not like we fixed it, and now we have citizen energy and community energy again in wind farms. No, but it's like the definition that is in the red two is a bit narrower and tries to avoid such situations. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. the gaming thing might always happen because as legislation gets smarter, lawyers get smarter and then companies get smarter. Mm -hmm. And there will always be ways around and ways to ways to deceive the system, ways for fraud and stuff. Mm -hmm. You at some point as a legislator you have to accept it and deal with it. Mm -hmm. That's just it. And state aid actually might be might might be a way to to do it. To to um, incentivize renewables. Uh, sorry, community energy. Well, to set rules for them, mm -hmm. because as you mentioned in the beginning, like the red two is very, very vague on what member states can do and what member states cannot do. And I could, I could see a world in which the state aid guidelines um, clarify some of this. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let, for because, just just for our audience yeah. briefly, let's 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 clarify what we mean by state aid. Most lay people don't use the word state aid. They talk about subsidies. And subsidies yeah. is not a term in, I guess, EU law. The EU talks about state aid. And the, the interesting thing about state aid for me is that there's, you, you would think that the EU would say, okay, there's either state aid or not state aid. They would decide, is this a subsidy or not a subsidy? <laughs> uh, but actually what they're talking about, there's three things. There's, there's, you can have not state aid, 
But if you have yes state aid, there's actually two kinds. There's allowable and illegal, or legal and illegal, something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. But the point is that in every kind of market, you want the players to play fairly. Mm -hmm. And in this setting, then the European Commission is our referee. And they kind of decide what the trainers are allowed to feed mm -hmm. their players. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> kind of doping. Yeah. Um, good, and good analogy. So okay. the state yeah. aid rules. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a soccer girl. The state aid rules are there are so many different different um, rules relating to which form of um, subsidy or state aid is allowed and which one is not, mm -hmm. um, so that they function as kind of a guidance to the member states and when they pump money into the market, then how they're supposed to do it. And the European Commission watches over that. Mm -hmm. So normally when you grant a subsidy or state aid to an undertaking or a group of undertakings, a production line or whatever, and then you have to notify the European Commission. Mm -hmm and they have to give their approval. Mm -hmm. Everything else, like when you, when you don't notify it, it's illegal by its very being. Okay, yeah. Which that, is that, a bad thing. Right, that, that comes on top. So you, not notifying is automatically illegal. Notifying starts this right. process of, of review. But um, I'd like to bring this back a little bit to specifically the, the feed-in tariffs, the FITs. Um, because everyone is really proposing that we just, you know, why don't we switch the payment, uh, the EEG umlage, this surcharge that we uh, use to cover the, the expenses right now of the feed-in tariffs. Why don't we switch this surcharge over to a taxation system because the taxation is progressive and the way we're doing it now, this um, pay-as-you-go system, oh, not as a tax but as for ratepayers, right? Why don't we do that to protect the poor? And my understanding, as a not a lawyer, is that that's illegal because the courts have always said the reason why these German feed-in tariffs were not state aid was that it wasn't state money. It never touched the state budget. So fixing this, you know, protecting the poor by making it a progressive tax would be illegal, would make the policy illegal immediately. What's your assessment of that? That's exactly the problem. Um, it is the, the ECJ ruled that the, uh, the, that the EEG 2012, like the, the mechanism, the financing mechanism, does not involve state aid because it does not involve state resources. If you would pump tax money into the EEG, mm -hmm. To, to finance the, uh, the development of renewable energy, it would make the EEG state aid. And then you would have all the situation of the influence of DG competition on um, German renewable energy support policies and all the stuff that with the judgment by the ECJ, we actually would not need to consider anymore. However, there are ways you could do that if you would um, take the, I call it new tax money mm -hmm. and put it only into limited areas, but not to the broad support to all renewables. And we have, um, we have an exemption from the EEG surcharge on, uh, also for, for self-consumption. And that was also approved by the European Commission. The idea is of when I take a state aid measure 
or something that has been approved as state aid by DG competition mm -hmm. in the assumption that the German financing mechanism is state aid, which was the case when the um, when the uh, German EEG 2014 and 2017 were approved. Right. right. Um, the Commission was considering its state aid and granted their approval for the benefits that were given to the installations under those regimes. Right. So, and if I now say, okay, the Commission was thinking it was state aid back then, mm -hmm. then I can make it state aid now, and the Commission cannot say, well, now we don't accept it anymore because the only thing that we changed is where the financing comes from so that it is now state aid. Oh. If you, okay, I, th now, you know I, th I, mean? I think I finally understood what you're saying, yeah. We take the example of the CO2 uh, price, mm -hmm. um, and so just take state money and pump it into the EEG to lower the surcharge, mm -hmm. um, while at the same time limiting the parts of the EEG that would become state aid, so okay. that we limit the influence that state-aid authorities, aka DG competition, mm -hmm. could have on the rest of the EEG policy. Yeah, okay. And, and of course, there, there's another way of doing this completely, which is to say, let's use social policy, uh, because as far as I know, Brussels doesn't yeah. come in very often and tell Germany how to run its welfare program. So Craig, she basically says we should design auctions so that community projects can win. And one proposal is a carve-out for small projects outside of auctions. Yes, but she puts the size limit at 3 megawatts, not 18 megawatts. And that seems more realistic. And honestly, it would allow quite a few community projects to move forward. But... The average turbine size in Germany is already 3 megawatts, so you'd only be able to build one, and as the turbines get bigger, you'd be stuck with units smaller than the average. Well, you could also say 3 megawatts or one turbine, and then a single turbine could be bigger, but you couldn't build two at the same time. And what about Jana's idea of using tax money to protect the poor or big industry? Well, she's the lawyer, not me. Um, it seems clever as a way of navigating the laws we have, but a part of me just doesn't understand why all this needs to be so complicated. I agree. Somehow our laws don't reflect the urgency of the energy transition and don't make it easy for everyone to participate. Maybe that, making it easy for everyone to pitch in should be the focus of our new energy laws. Yeah, maybe you should change your Twitter handle from Freitag for Future to Freitag for President. Uh, I'm not changing my Twitter handle again. All right. <laughs> anyway, this has already been a long episode. So Craig and I thought we would summarize what we have learned in a separate but short bonus episode. We hope you have enjoyed listening as much as we have enjoyed making this podcast. Yes, everyone, it's been a pleasure. For now, take care and goodbye. Goodbye. 
You have been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency, the AEE, for the local community renewables project LECO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014 to 2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! And our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. The music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan. Tricolor! Check the show notes for links to their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. Okay, so this week, Rebecca and I are going to close the entire podcast with our two favorite jokes sent in by our guests. And my favorite comes from Jakob Schland of German Daily Tagesspiegel. So, Rebecca, you know what a homing pigeon is? Yes. Okay, so it's the pigeon that, you know, sends messages, right? So it yeah. homes in. So, the joke is, you never lose a homing pigeon. If your homing pigeon doesn't come back, then all you've lost is a pigeon. <laughs> Get it? If you lose the pigeon, it can't have been a homing pigeon. Uh, okay, that's pretty deep. <laughs> Maybe deeper than funny, <laughs> but kind, kind of funny. Yeah. Okay, all right. So yeah. what was your favorite joke from our guests? So mine came from Claudia Kempfert. The question is, how many conservative economists does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, not another light bulb joke. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't know how many. Okay, I have, I have two, two answers, by uh -huh. the way. Okay. First answer... None. If the government would just leave it alone, it would screw itself in. Okay. <laughs> okay, and now the second version. None. The invisible hand of the market will correct the lighting disequilibrium. Ah, also deeper than funny. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, so that's all from us, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.